0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Molecule to Market. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. I appreciate it very much. And if you get a chance today, please head over to the App Store and give us a five-star rating. And today, you're in for a treat because I had a brilliant conversation with Vanessa el Vice President, Vaccines Business Strategy Lead at PP. D. Vanessa is actually a doctor or an MD by trade, and she now leads early engagement with vaccine sponsors and offers strategic guidance in the development and implementation of vaccine trials. Her areas of expertise include COVID-19 vaccine development and medical monitoring of vaccine studies and HIV biomedical prevention. She is board certified in preventative medicine and public health, having completed a master's in public health at the John Hopkins University. If that was not impressive enough, Vanessa is also fluent in French, Spanish and Hebrew. I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Vanessa today. Uh, she's such a bright, eloquent lady that uh, carved a really interesting career for herself, you know, from... Being a, a medical doctor by trade and, and ultimately ended up in a career that is having a, an impact on a, on a global patient population is really quite fascinating. And it was great to get her perspective on being at the centre of vaccine development and patient distribution over the last year. Uh, and also she talks about the pandemic's role as the day of reckoning for the sector in terms of doing things differently. And she talks about virtualization of trials as an example of, of what the future may hold. She has a really interesting background in the HIV uh, research space as well. So she talks about how mRNA vaccines could be the key in helping support patients uh, in this area. And not just limited to uh, you know medical knowledge and public health um, impact, uh, she also talks uh, very uh, interestingly about uh, the trend towards, uh, you know, CDMOs and CROs merging to offer almost a complementary and unified service capability to the farm and biotech space, and also the need for the sector just to be better prepared for future pandemics, uh, in terms of both, uh, you know, better disease surveillance and detection, but stockpiling and also local manufacturing to make sure that countries are better prepared. I really enjoyed my episode uh, with, um, with Vanessa, and I genuinely hope you do too. So please enjoy. Hey, Vanessa, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ramon, for having me. Great to be here.
0: Thank you so much. And Vanessa, let's start off with your background. It'd be great to give our listeners a, a bit of an overview of uh, you know, h- how you got into the sector, um, I know you've got a really interesting background from college as well, so it'd be great to hear your story to to where you are today at PPD.
1: I originally did my undergrad degree in physiology and um, had many different interests at that time, but decided ultimately to pursue medicine um, at Indiana University and decided from a lot of traveling done during medical school in my younger years that I really wanted to focus more on public health than actual delivery of clinical care to patients. And that led me to do a lot of research and speak with a fellow medical student, actually, who knew about residencies in preventive medicine and public health. Those were not very well advertised because they were not 100% clinical residencies. There was a lot of public health rotations, you get your master's in public health as part of that residency. So I kind of had to do my own digging and and relied on some colleagues that that knew a little more than I did. And after internship, uh, I ended up finishing my residency at Johns Hopkins in preventive medicine and public health and absolutely loved it. Truly, I, I think... The research, study design, biostats, data skills that I gained via the master's in public health and the public health rotations that I did as part of my preventive medicine residency really, I think, prepared me very well for the past 16 years that I've been working virtually exclusively in in clinical research. Um, The first 11 years were with the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. Um, in HIV prevention trials, and then the past almost over four and a half years have been with PPD, most of which has been in vaccine clinical trials. So it's been a <laughs> a long and winding journey. Kind of had to find my own way, but I think it's turned out very nicely.
0: Very good. And I have lots of lots of follow-up questions. when did or where did that interest for public health come from? Is that something to do with, your family background or just something you had a, had an interest in and um and you know and was working in the pharmaceutical sector ever on your radar was that something you ever thought you would do in your career
1: so no at the beginning you know when i was a medical student even when i was a resident I, it did not occur to me i thought i wanted to do straight public health perhaps work in underserved parts of the globe myself on the ground and i did do that um I ended up doing a six month rotation with the Pan American Health Organization in Guatemala um, with the um, expanded program on immunizations. And I think, you know, my appreciation for public health and the fact that you could impact so many more people through this kind of work than seeing patients one-on-one, I think solidified my decision that this was the right way to go. And, you know, nothing wrong, of course, you know, clinical care is absolutely vital and necessary. I just wanted to make sure that the work I did impacted many, many, many more people and happened at an international level and not just here in the U.S.
0: Do you ever do you ever think about a parallel life, Vanessa, where you ended up (laughs) becoming a hospital doctor? And I say this from a place of because my <laughs> wife is a doctor and I've seen her uh-huh. do both, so I'm just curious whether or not you, uh, it's not about regret, but more, you know, do you ever wonder what where that would have taken you?
1: Well, you know, I somewhat know where that would have taken me because I have many colleagues from my medical school days who did just that. And of course, I've kept in touch with them through the years and especially through the pandemic, which has been an extremely stressful time to be a frontline healthcare provider. And I can say, you know, given the experience of colleagues and my own gratification with with what I've been able to work on in my career in public health, that I don't have a single regret. Frankly, I, I'm happy with the way things have turned out and the the career I chose to pursue.
0: Good, good for you. And uh, I wanted you obviously mentioned, uh, I suppose, vaccines and uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, might, you know. You're board certified in preventative medicine and public health. And, you know, from my research, you're an expert in infectious disease and vaccine development. And how would you describe the last year in the life of someone with your skill set?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, this is uh, it's kind of been the worst thing that could possibly happen and, and the best thing all at the same time because obviously the worst thing is the suffering you see around the world, the public health emergency, the death and and health impacts all around are awful. Career-wise in terms of vaccine development, it's been a true revolution and to to be part of that and to have been part of that I think has been the culmination of my career thus far truly in public health. I mean, to see the advent of mRNA vaccines come to fruition and have such a huge impact on a, a global public health emergency has been amazing, truly amazing. Um, I, I don't know that I could have made a stronger public health impact in, at any other time in history and working in any other field, truly. So it's been a privilege.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. It's a it's a really good uh, analysis of th- the pain and suffering of the last year or so. But also, you know, you know, certainly having people like you in the world has probably enabled us to, you know, get a, get vaccines to the market quicker than than ever. And and did you, you know, based on your experience in public health and uh, you know, and, and dealing with infectious diseases. Did you ever envisage that we would be able to deal with a pandemic from a from a pharmaceutical drug development perspective and get a vaccine to market so quickly? Is that something that you would have envisaged possible, or something that's taken
1: you by surprise? I think the speed at which vaccines have been developed um, is is unprecedented and no, I would never have imagined that this would be possible. And this is almost a dream come true, not only in terms of the short timelines for vaccine development, but the the level of efficacy and safety we're seeing in in the vaccines approved for EUA in this country are astronomical. I mean, it's beyond my wildest dreams, frankly. <laughs> it's, it's It's really, really, really
0: encouraging. Very good, and um, I just wanted to rewind back to you mention a, a a big chunk of your career was spent at the uh, National Institutes of of Health and mm-hmm. being involved in I believe HIV uh, research and in, in helping combat uh, AIDS and that that particular subject is not an area I have huge expertise in, but I know it's come on the agenda in the last twelve months because of the shift in focus. Um, towards obviously COVID and, and dealing with COVID. So I suppose for, you know, people even like myself, that don't know much about research in that field and, you know, curious to get your thoughts on where that is today and whether or not these, uh, I suppose, new modern forms of drugs that are coming to market could be, could unlock something that might be able to to help in those areas in, in the future.
1: Oh, sure, Raman. So, I think we're already seeing the push towards um, an mRNA vaccine for HIV. It's an approach we haven't tried before. It's a it's a vaccine construct that it has just recently been been. Um, Gosh, I can't find the word. It's a vaccine construct that's just recently been validated. Um, So we are, Moderna, for example, is looking into an HIV vaccine using their mRNA platform in concert with the NIH. So I think that um, the pandemic has brought some surprising um, gifts or advances that can be used in other areas, HIV being one of them. Overall, in the field of HIV treatment and prevention, I think what we're seeing is um, development of longer-acting treatments um, and prevention modalities um, used as pre-exposure prophylaxis um, that don't require a daily pill and that could, in the case of treatment, result in long-term viral suppression um, that would... in in turn, also minimize transmission risk from that person to to HIV negative folks. So, you know, I think heart or antiretroviral therapy revolutionized HIV treatment. It also, those same agents also ended up revolutionizing HIV prevention. The next frontier would be wonderful if we could find a vaccine. And let's see if mRNA is the key here.
0: Well, hopefully it is. And that's uh, certainly encouraging from uh, you know, from from the perspective of all of us listening, that there could be um, you know, something that could really help patients in uh, you know, in that that particular area. And and you know, if you look at your your experience and the time that you spent, uh, you know, at the NIH, and you know, obviously your background in in public health, I'm curious to know what the draw was to PPD when I became knocking on your door because it's a bit of a departure from what you would you had been doing i suspect it's been very different uh to what you'd experienced beforehand especially working with presumably numerous of clients and helping with numerous projects so so kind of two-part question what was that draw to ppd and also mm-hmm. how's that experience been? kind of going uh you know from from that research in uh, you know, a perspective to obviously dealing with multiple clients i'm guessing
1: Sure. So, you know, I'll start by saying that PPD actually does a large amount of business with U.S. government entities that do clinical research, including NIH. In fact, um, the division that I worked in at NIH um, has worked with PPD uh, to do their clinical site monitoring for decades. And so I knew of PPD even while working at NIH and knew of their very strong reputation. Um, and to this day, PPD has continued to work with NIH and other government agencies focused on health, uh, especially during the pandemic. So it's a longstanding relationship. I would say the transition um, occurred the way most transition occurred. So on one hand, perhaps you feel like your current, your current situation is good, but gosh, where's the challenge? Maybe I need to change things up a little bit. And second, you know, you're approached by someone who's perhaps worked at PPD and said, well, you know, what about, what about that? You know, would you be interested? Would you like me to connect you with people? And that's, Somewhat how it happened. And, the, you know, the transition was not that difficult. While I was working mainly with industry clients rather than government, I was working on vaccine clinical trials, which are prevention trials with healthy volunteers. And that's what I had been doing at NIH for many, many years. Um, so, you know, the skills that I gained uh, from my many years overseeing HIV prevention trials at NIH were very translatable and applicable to the work that I, that I did at PPD. And I think I also grew uh, with my role at PPD, given the pace at which things proceed. Government trials tend to proceed at a little bit of a slower pace. Um, <laughs> and that was an adjustment for me, but I would say a good adjustment. I really did enjoy the faster pace of things and seeing results come out sooner. Um, so it's been, it's been a a positive move for me, no regrets.
0: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And I wanted to ask about, you know, obviously a specialist in preventative medicine and, and One of the themes that have come up in the podcast with interviews we've done uh, in the last six months has been preparedness for future
1: pandemics.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'd love your thoughts on how, you know, hindsight's a great thing to have, you know, how could governments, how could the world at large be better prepared for future pandemics? So, you know, very broad question in terms of, you know, what. What could we do, right? You know, let's say we get through COVID in mm-hmm. you know, the best way possible, and we live—I presume—to you know—with COVID in our lives for the rest of our lives, whatever that might look like. But you know, something else could happen on the horizon. We've you know, we've been g- given something in our lifetime that none of us really probably expected amongst you know normal everyday people. But you know, what could we do as an industry uh, to, or as you know, from a government perspective, to be better prepared for? For future pandemics
1: so i think you're absolutely right raman that there's both an industry and government component to uh, preparedness for the next pandemic and on the government side i think um, disease surveillance is going to be absolutely critical and strengthening that not just in the us but worldwide um, on the industry side i think we've seen firsthand the value of innovative platform technologies that are easier to manufacture, such as MRNA, um, and also very easy to adapt to new pathogens and antigens, Um, kind of a plug-and-play type technology that you can use not just for vaccines, but perhaps for diagnostics as well, Mm -hmm. um, which would allow us to respond much quicker. In terms of testing and also intervening with a vaccine or a therapeutic next time around, um, there's also, uh, you know, uh, a very important component is in terms of respiratory disease pandemics to stockpiling the right uh, the right equipment, masks, ventilators, um, personal protective equipment that we really ran short of uh, early on in the pandemic and. Also, I think many countries around the world have learned their lessons. There needs to be domestic manufacturing of all of the above.
0: Do you, and do you um, just? I mean, I love you getting your perspective on this because I think you come at it from a, uh, I suppose, a public health angle rather than a manufacturing <laughs> and industry <laughs> angle. And that that last point there around, you know, um, local manufacturing. Do you do you envisage there will be a a, a shift towards using local manufacturers or partners versus say the more you know traditional global model that we've seen in the last few years or uh, certainly one of the perspectives that we've had on the podcast has been almost a combination of global and local uh, for, from a contingency perspective so any thoughts that you've got uh, on on that subject would be would be great
1: you know i don't i see that there will still be some global manufacturing that's not going away but i think Virtually all countries have recognized now the importance of having local manufacturing capacity, um, at least for vaccines and, and public health interventions that are going to be mission critical for the country. Um, as I think of this, I think of Canada. I have a lot of family in Canada, and I think that's been one of the lessons learned. Um, in Canada is that they need to have manufacturing capacity for vaccines, simply put, and that was not present in the country. I think also, you know, many countries learn that they need to invest further in their own biotech sector and, and, and fund those biotechs when, when it's mission critical and there's a time constraint to really getting those products out and t- tested and out to market as soon as possible.
0: I love your thoughts on that. It's really interesting. And, uh, it, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, Canada, I was reading an article yesterday about Canada's had the longest uh, lockdown of restaurants in the world. Well, actually, it was Toronto specifically, which I thought was fascinating. And they actually, around the Toronto area, also have a huge drug pharmaceutical drug manufacturing capability. So it's kind of bizarre to see the two things there. But I think, you know, along Vaccine specific, I'm, I'm not sure. And that investment in biotech, I think you're right, is, is critical. And I'm just, I wanted to kind of circle back to PPD and, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm conscious of the fact you probably can't say a huge amount about my next question, but obviously in, uh, you know, a month or so ago, it was announced that, uh, you know, Thermo Fisher would be, uh, you know, acquiring PPD and, uh, you know, I know these deals take a long time, to, to go through, but, you know, anything you can tell us, uh, you know, about th- the deal or uh, not, 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 obviously financials or anything sure. like that, but just, just any top line thoughts, you know, people are always, it, you know, it's another big deal in, in the contract services space. Um, so, you know, anything specific about the deal and also just, I mean, I'm personally seeing an interesting trend where we're seeing more clinical research or contract research companies combining with, contract manufacturing companies so any thoughts you've got on that trend in the market and and why that might be happening so a bit of a two-part question there if if you you're able to, to answer either
1: Oh, absolutely, Raman. So yes, it does seem to be a trend, doesn't it? Um, So I can't say a whole lot about um, the deal that you mentioned with PPD and Thermo Fisher. Again, it has not yet gone through that's expected to happen by the end of the year. I can say personally that I'm very excited about it. I think it it, it's, it represents complementary skill sets and client offerings that are being joined into one company. Again, PPD is going to be a standalone business unit within Thermo Fisher. So it's not going to be a messy integration, so to speak, or a merger. Um, and I think it does make sense to have CDMO capacity and CRO capacity under one umbrella. Uh, Thermo Fisher currently doesn't have uh, CRO services that they can offer their clients, and PPD currently doesn't have CDMO services they can offer their clients. Just in general, I would say, and and I'm sure you know this well, is that manufacturing clinical trial lots of vaccine or therapeutics can certainly be a rate-limiting step in getting clinical trials started and having that capacity as well as the clinical trial capacity under one umbrella can help with timeline certainty mm-hmm. in terms of getting your trial implemented and executed and completed in a timely manner so i do see that as a big advantage of of merging those two types of services
0: yeah no that's, that's genuinely fascinating insight uh, there that you've provided on the complementary skill sets and uh you know and i've seen numerous deals in the last few weeks actually going down a similar route and it's 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 fascinating to see both the cro and uh cdmo sectors have been largely fragmented for for a long time and (laughs) they're now kind of consolidating together which is uh which is is not something i i actually expected to see so so there there you go and i wanted to circle back to, to you as an individual and you know you're, you're obviously very humble but you you know what you've achieved in your career is is phenomenal and uh, and also I, I understand you speak French Spanish and <laughs> Hebrew <laughs> so wonderful well, I'm gonna go on to that question but I mean how, how do you make time to learn all these languages at the same time as uh, clearly being a very uh, busy busy, Business person, uh, you know, <laughs> delivering real benefit to the, to the the world at the minute. So, you know, as someone that tries to, uh, you know, I suppose, do as much as possible in you know live my life to the full. How how do you make time to speak three languages or four? Obviously, including English as well. Uh, in addition to all your other work, what does that work life balance look like for you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so I have to say I had a bit of an advantage in that I learned all of those languages before the age of 16. Okay. And I would highly recommend that to anyone who wants to pick up a second language. <laughs> so now what I do these days is just practice. Uh, French is actually my mother tongue. I spoke it before English. It's what we spoke at home mm-hmm. growing up. Um, Hebrew I learned as a child and has continued to speak throughout my young adulthood, less, less these days, but throughout my young adulthood in Spanish, Living in Florida, I get a lot of practice with um, and picked up in my late adolescence, I would say, and through a lot of travel. Um, It's funny, the position that I held at PPD before my current position was regional medical officer covering Europe, and I had plenty of opportunity to utilize my French my Spanish and my Hebrew um, with all the travel I was doing and client engagement. So it was really a nice way to marry um, my medical background mm-hmm. and my role at PPD with another area that I really enjoy, which is languages. So it's, it's, it's come in handy, I would say
0: i am very jealous i don't know how you do it that you are a scientist medical professional and and managed to speak four languages but i <laughs> i admire you very much so and so on on that then so you know you look at your career vanessa and what you've achieved and you know you've obviously you know incredibly talented and driven etc and what what do you have to work at yourself or, you know where are your weak spots Be you know what what we try to do is is paint a picture of leaders like yourself in the industry, not necessarily being completely perfect, but always being kind of work in progress. So I'm I'm interested to know what that looks like for you and what areas you have to continually work on and and improve.
1: You know, I think a mixture of what I do at PPD is leadership, but also teamwork and finding the right balance between the two is sometimes hard because you have to switch roles and switch hats quite a bit. And I think that that is critical. Um, another area I would say, and I've grown a lot in this area in the past year, and year and a half in my new role, is that, you know, my, my training is mainly medical and scientific, but I'm working in a business capacity and learning that language, learning those concepts, being able to um, understand not just the basics, but more advanced concepts in that area has been a good learning experience and continues, I think, to be a, an area of further growth for me. And I'm enjoying that.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's great. Um, and it is, a, it, you're right, you know, the 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 language and methodology of business and leadership and teamwork is probably very different to languages in medical. So it's, it's <laughs> another string to your bone, no, no doubt. And And, you know, as a as a leader in this space, what what a piece of advice would you have for other leaders, you know, developing their career or even more specific, you know, someone who's a, you know, a medical a professional that's, uh, you know, carving a career for themselves in public health and, uh, and, and maybe even in the pharmaceutical sector, any advice you've got for those folks would be, would be great.
1: You know, I think the biggest piece of advice would be go with what interests you and where you feel you can make the biggest contribution. Play to your strengths. Mm -hmm. Um, If the international community and and contributing to international health really matter for you, on a personal and professional level, find opportunities that will allow you to achieve that. I mean, there's just no reason to be working on something when you're not engaged and fully committed and excited about what you're doing. Um, and it can be in multiple capacities. You know, I, I from a medical standpoint, I never really saw myself working in a business capacity, but I found that my reach can be a little bit wider this way, in mm-hmm. fact. So be open to new approaches, new angles, new skills that you can learn ap- along the way. But I think stay true to what matters to you and what you're good at. I think that that summarizes it in a nutshell.
0: No, no, I think that's terrific uh, advice, and I think I, I love what I love your thoughts on, you know, making a biggest impact and reach. I think it's a really uh, refreshing way of looking at things, and you know, you know, not to undermine the amazing work frontline workers do, but you said at the start, you know, rather than that one one patient aspect, which is obviously critical in clinical care, but that you wanted to do something that would uh, you know, in this instant, this is going to impact millions, if not billions of people, which is a phenomenal uh, place to be. And, and, and if you could go back and give your 25-year-old self some advice, Vanessa, what, what would you say to her?
1: Oh, goodness. I would probably say persevere. You know, don't give up. Follow your instincts. Goodness. When I was 25, what was I doing? Let's see. I think I was in the middle of medical school Mm. and probably really tired, working really hard. I think I was on clinical rotations where I had to wake up at four in the morning and, you know, do some call and just probably very exhausted. And I would just say, you know what, one day it's going to all be worth it. And you're going to be really happy with where your career takes you. So persevere Mm -hmm. and listen to yourself. Um, the vast majority, 99% of the people that you're graduating medical school with will go on to clinical careers. And that's wonderful. We need people like that. But that doesn't mean that's what you need to do. You need to follow your instincts, follow your interests, and everything's going to turn out fine.
0: Yeah. yeah and I, I think you are a great example for kind of carving your own path and creating your own route based on the experience and the career that, that you, you've had today. And how, how would your best friend describe you in, in three words?
1: <laughs> three words, really? Okay. So let's see, probably they would describe me as stubborn, which I've had to be over the years, <laughs> kind of a unique thinker. Mm-hmm but also someone who tries to help along the way and inspire and mentor and pass on the knowledge and experience that I've gained to others. Uh, And I've tried to do that at PPD, not just at PPD, at NIH as well. I've really tried to connect with um, colleagues and help in any way I can
0: love it and i had to ask, I have to ask about the stubbornness and whether or not that's caused you challenges in your career because it's a, it's an interesting word to use and you know <laughs> stubbornness can be a huge advantage but it can also be a, uh, get you into hot water i suspect so any uh yeah but you know if, if someone's listening and being like oh well you know i'm i'm stubborn i have the same problem <laughs> what does what does that look like in your life and how do you recognize it in yourself where you're like, okay, I'm being stubborn and I probably need to reflect and let go or something like that. What What does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So I would start with saying that there are times when it's good to be stubborn, truly. And I, I've run into that um, when I've been a medical monitor and really had a strong opinion about what was safe and what wasn't safe in a clinical trial. And that was worth being stubborn about, despite the consequences, despite whatever hot water that involved. Um, you know, in other areas, I think I've learned to bend over the years and and you know compromise and find a middle ground. Patient safety has never been one of those areas, and that's that's an area I think I'm proud to be stubborn about.
0: <laughs> yeah i i really love that actually it's a great example and i remember years ago hearing the story of a, a guy i used to work for and he was a he was a qp in a in a, uh, at a pharmaceutical manufacturing company and uh the he it was i think it was a late phase uh drug development program and he he refused to sign off mm-hmm. on on the on the manufacturer or there was a problem or something like that and he told the story of a guy um, swinging a chair at his head in a boardroom <laughs> because he wouldn't sign it off. And, you know, it, it almost almost similar to what you said there, Vanessa, like he wouldn't put a patient's life at risk when he knew it, was the, it wasn't it was in the interest of the patient. It was not the right decision. But, you know, obviously the commercial realities of, you know, a phase three failure or whatever it was, are <laughs> huge. Um, but it was, it, yeah, so I think i think we're all grateful for stubbornness <laughs> in that context when it comes mm-hmm. to safety and we've got another 5 minutes or so left and we talked a little generally already about the sector and you know from an MA perspective from a cro cdmo and and obviously i suppose preparedness for future pandemics as well any other kind of shifts or trends or interesting things that you're seeing going on? And, you know, our listeners love to kind of be at the forefront of where the industry is going and what we'll see in the next few years. And, uh, you know, I think you bring a very unique perspective because of your medical background and your focus on public health and and obviously what you mentioned around uh, mRNA and, you know, say application with other areas. So anything else you've can share with our listener that you think would be of value would be would be hugely appreciated
1: Oh, absolutely so i think you know the pandemic has been a huge reckoning for the entire clinical research industry in terms of how we do things I mean, we've certainly needed to revisit age old SOPs Mm -hmm. during the pandemic and see where we could try and shorten timelines, do things a bit differently without compromising quality and safety. And lo and behold, we found some of those areas, frankly. And I don't expect we're going to go back to pre-pandemic ways of doing things, for example. Um, you know, of course, for vaccine development, the, the speed at which things went was thanks to regulatory approval to go at that speed. And, and of course, that may change, you know, when we're not in emergency situations. But I think that um, virtualizations of certain visits or, in fact, entire trials conducted remotely has, has seen its day frankly. And we're going to see a lot more of that. And it's going to make clinical trial participation a lot more convenient for subjects um, in all areas of the country, but especially in rural areas, and especially for indications where it's tough to find participants, frankly. And it's going to give you a wider reach to find them in areas where there may not be a physical site. So I think. virtualization of clinical trials and even certain visits in otherwise brick- and mortar clinical trials is going to be a huge revolution that's just started frankly mm-hmm. oh, I, that's a
0: that's a great uh, insight for our uh, for our listeners as well and i think what you said around the reckoning for the sector and kind of going back to or not going back to things pre- pandemic is is certainly something that we've heard uh mm-hmm. again and again and i think you, you you reinforcing that from a CRO perspective is is really interesting. And um, my, my final question is, you know, one around along the similar themes or around, you know, the kind of acceleration of the vaccine and, and the role of the regulators you mentioned there. And, you know, do you think when we're in a non-emergency situation that you expect to see faster drug development in the future um or you know when, when life goes back to normal and we're not in a global pandemic situation do you think we might slip back into the i suppose the uh the the longer lead times and uh you know the the 10-year life cycle or whatever the common the common uh cycle is because i think you know if i look at it very much from a uh you know a man on the street perspective that sees that has seen how quick a drug has been developed you know that is you know going to benefit the entire globe why on earth can that not happen for everything i know it's a very yeah, it's a very complex thing to say but uh, you know th- th- that's that's the reality where people are like well why haven't we got uh you know treatments for x y and z and why does it take so long so any thoughts on you know whether or not you think this will this huge reckoning that you mentioned will be something that will impact timelines for the future and whether the expectation of drug development companies and big pharma companies you know, we want our CROs and CDMOs to work even quicker. Mm-hmm. The, the, the bar has been raised.
1: <laughs> it has. Yeah. It's certainly been raised. And I think we are seeing from customers that, okay, you've done this for our COVID vaccine trial. We want you to do this for all our programs. We don't want to go back to the timelines that we were utilizing before. Um, so in a, in a certain extent on the execution side, there are things that can be expedited. Um, the design of trials can be expedited and that we're seeing a lot more adaptive design trials, so phase one, two trials, phase two, three trials. You don't really stop um, for a long period between phases. You do a safety review, um, look at your endpoints, and then move on to the next phase of a trial. I, I think that that is going to be a long-term um, change in the way clinical trials are done, you know, that said, we were in a pandemic situation, meaning there were a lot of cases of COVID happening that allowed these vaccine trials to accrue endpoints, meaning cases of COVID, very quickly. And that is one reason why we were able to get study results so quickly. Um, that may not be the case for other Um, infectious diseases where we're studying a vaccine. Mm -hmm. So incidence of a disease, especially when you're doing an endpoint-driven trial, really affects how long your trial needs to run in order to get the endpoints. So that is a rate-limiting factor. So some of the execution, yes, can be expedited, I think, and we're seeing those requests from clients very much so. Um, the way you design your clinical development program also can lend itself to expediting timelines. Um, but if you're doing an endpoint-driven trial, that you're going to have to place your sites very carefully where you think you're going to see the, the most disease incidence. And, and incidence is really going to drive the speed at which you can get a result. Mm-hmm. So, yes. There are ways that we can do this quicker in the future, but there are also rate limiting steps, yeah. um, so we'll have to be mindful of that.
0: Well, I think that's a it's a really brilliant place place to end the interview, and I, you know, it's the, the, the raising of the bar is just going to make your life more difficult <laughs> in the <laughs> yes. next few years. But, uh, you know, Vanessa, I was I was actually, you know, I'm I'm so glad you accepted my invitation, and uh, I was really looking forward. To to speaking with you today, and you've certainly not disappointed. I think you've uh, the impact that you've had, uh, you know, during the last year, and the, the nature of the work that you do has been has been great. And I like I'm for one, a very grateful and thank you for making the time in your busy schedule to be a guest on on Molecule to Market.
1: It's been my pleasure, Raman. Thank you so much for your time and for having me.
0: Thank you. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, MoleculeToMarketPod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market,
1: where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by
0: Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps
1: companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.